Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey folks, Kaiser here. Before we get started, I want to remind everybody about the upcoming SubChina Women's Conference, How Women Are Shaping the Rising Global Power. That's going to be on Monday, May 20th at the Harmony Club in New York City. It's going to be our third annual conference. There are going to be quite a number of very uh, eminent women in a number of fields. We have Ariana Huffington, who's going to be delivering a keynote address. We've got Wayson Christensen, who's CEO of Morgan Stanley. We've got Merit Janow, the Dean of the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. Lots and lots of former Seneca guests you're familiar with. Everyone from Sam Sachs, the amazing Sam Sachs. Virginia Tan, who's founder of Lean In Tech and Teja Ventures. We've also got Lenora Chu, who, of course, is the author of Little Soldiers, a huge star-studded affair. Jeremy and I will be recording an episode of the Cynical Podcast with none other than Charlene Barshevsky, the former U.S. trade representative, who, of course, helped China's entry into the WTO. So make sure to come along and hopefully see you there. Once again, that is May 20th. That's a Monday at the Harmony Club in New York. You can get your tickets at SubChina, and there are still tickets available. So get them now. Welcome to this live edition of the Seneca Podcast, coming to you today from the New York Times building in Midtown Manhattan. Let's hear you folks make a little noise. Right. The Cynical Podcast is a weekly discussion on current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day through our email newsletter, our app, and, of course, at the website SupChina.com. We offer uncensored reporting on everything from the burgeoning tech cold war to the Belt and Road, from artificial intelligence to the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. Let me say a thank you to Albert Wong and the good folks here at Datadog, whose offices we're in. Let's give it up for Datadog. Yeah. This is a magnificent Pizza and beer, courtesy of Datadog. We yeah. Should yeah, pizza be and beer. Because we know that's what you came for. So. so suffer through us a little bit longer, and then you'll be able to have more pizza and more beer. I am Kaiser Guo, and I am joined by Jeremy Goldcorn, a chaotic, good, seventh-level half-elf ranger with 56 hit points, armor class four, and a 17 charisma. Hail and welcome, Jericorn of Tennisonia. <laughs> what news have ye for the good Shire folk tending their hearts oh, no. at home? I, oh, it's all terrible, Kaiser. Our, our leaders across the world are all either idiots or evil, and, um, you know, the Shire is a we mess. We must rise up. <laughs> Take arms, good adventurer. We will yes, right sir. the wrongs of the world. Uh, what? No Dungeons and Dragons players here? On the <laughs> I think um, Dungeons and Dragons may be becoming a kind of in- unfortunate indicator of our age, Kaiser. Oh, it's coming back. It's coming back. The 20-sided dice will be rolled once again. Uh, Jeremy, happy birthday to Seneca, right? I mean, it's nine years. Nine years ago, almost to the day, Yesterday, we sat yeah. in a very dirty... A very 
very dirty little studio, very different from this in a very dirty apartment building in a very dirty corner of Beijing, um, and recorded one of these. That was on yeah. April Fool's Day of 2010, right? And That's then right. it dropped the second day, the very next day. It no longer happens that quickly, <laughs> but hey. Anyway, why don't you introduce our guest, Jeremy? Today, we are delighted to be joined by Howard French. I'm sure I, I don't really need to introduce him to any of you here, but for the people listening on the other side of the internet, Howard is professor at Columbia Journal. Journalism School, that is Columbia University in New York City, not the journalism school in Columbia, Missouri. Howard spent most of his career as a foreign correspondent and has been posted in Africa, Central America, the Caribbean, and perhaps most importantly for our purposes today, China, where he was the New York Times Shanghai correspondent for a number of very prolific years. The strangest thing is that I've interviewed Howard, I've interviewed on stage now, I think three times, and you have yet to actually appear on the podcast, but we've done three interviews, right? No, I was in the studio in Beijing with you guys. Oh, you were? Okay, okay. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. yeah. We so did no. do a podcast in the oh, dirty yeah, studio. Right. You saw okay. the dirty studio. I'm yeah. counting that one, the dirty studio. So you've seen the dirty studio. I have. All right. Okay. Well, our studios are no longer dirty. Anyway, Howard is the author most recently of Everything Under the Heavens, How the Past Helps Shape China's Push for Global Power. And before that, of China's Second Continent, How a Million Migrants Are Building a New Empire in Africa. He's really one of only a handful of people I've met who's intellectually and, and experientially equipped to write on the complex relationships that China has with the various countries of Africa, and really one of the few journalists with the historical chops, I think, to tackle a big question that really wades into the deep historical waters and really wrestles with gigantic historiographic issues, um, the ones that your, your most recent book does, Howard. Uh, so welcome back to Seneca, then. It's great to be with you. Howard, there are a lot of topics we want to talk to you about, but let's start by talking about the work you're doing now, teaching journalism at Columbia and teaching presumably about foreign correspondence. What are the, some of the big lessons you try to drive home with your students? especially when it comes to reporting about China. The school year is broken into two semesters, as won't come as a surprise to you. And the two semesters are very different insofar as our instruction is concerned. In the fall, I typically teach very basic stuff, uh, fundamentals, reporting and writing. And in the spring, I teach topical things. And almost every year since in the 10 years I've been at Columbia, I've taught a seminar about contemporary China. And um, so... I try to prepare people both in a generic sense for how you should, be, how one can best get up to speed as a foreign correspondent, and then on top of that, I try to give them a a, a rich kind of interdisciplinary sense of, of 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 the literature and expertise on contemporary Chinese topics. And I bring in political scientists, historians, sociologists, economists. Etc. Etc. As class guests, and but being the J school, they have to actually commit journalism and write stories. Uh, <laughs> commit acts of journalism. That's right. <laughs> d during the semester. What about the lessons? I mean, for for specifically for China, you teach it specifically about China. Presumably, that's because maybe you don't believe that there are kind of generic lessons of foreign correspondence that are broadly applicable to all countries you would cover? No, I think that there are generic lessons that okay. that you know I have an approach to foreign correspondence, and I have the luxury of teaching the way I believe. One should prepare to become a foreign correspondent, and those lessons apply to whatever part of the world one wishes to go to. But uh, I've taught this class in specific because, A, when I came to Colombia, I was coming straight from China, and B, because, and this is sort of putting one and one together, 
um, it was obvious to me right from the start that there is a big pool of a, a subpopulation of our students who are very interested in China, including a very substantial number of Chinese students. Oh, so you do have students from the PRC? Absolutely. I mean, it'd be interesting to hear, though, uh, what their conversations have been about Western reporting about China, for example. Uh, every class is different. Um, I would say that, um, uh, you know, in the early years, uh, there was a lot of um, sort of ambient criticism about a, a sort of starting point in conversations that began with the notion that Western correspondence is unfair to China, that Westerners are reflexively critical toward China. Why can't they write good news about China? Students, uh, I just on Twitter was remarking recently about this, students back then objected sometimes, uh, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here, but objected sometimes even to the appearance of the words the Communist Party in stories about China. Like, why do you have to say that? China's, you know, what, what, you know, China is not communist or that's just the name of the party or things like that, right? Um, you don't hear that anymore. Right. Um, which is interesting to me. I don't have a scientific reason to give you for why do that you is. Do you hazard a guess as to why that's changed? Well, I think partly because of uh, my intuition tells me because the climate in China has changed. Right. And, and so uh, this has changed the relative sense of this uh, population of Chinese students in a class like this about, you know, where they are in their learning experience about writing about China. Are, are you suggesting that they may, might actually be more open to criticism of China because of what's going on in China? I wouldn't put it quite that way. I would say rather, and this is all a guess, right? I, I haven't polled these students. I haven't done a study of this, but or I would say... data. Yeah. I would say rather that because of the change in climate in China, they have a greater intuition, I'm sorry, appreciation of uh, some of the um, uh, liberties that go into being able to express criticism about China or to think off the kind of beaten path about China. Right. I mean, I, I think it's always interesting to talk to uh, Chinese people, who've, especially people who've lived in the States for a long time, and especially people who have, have worked in, in the news business for a long time. Uh, on one of the shows that we did, we, we talked to Jiang Fan of The New Yorker and asked her about how she feels when she reads Chinese or uh, English language reporting about China. And she came up with this great metaphor that she'd actually dropped at, at a New Yorker conference at one point, uh, where she, she had uh, talked about how it's like she she had grown up in China. She spent the first eight years of her life there, and then came to the U.S. She said it's like looking at an X-ray of a part of my body, an X-ray of my hand or my foot. Where in a very literal sense, it's penetrating. The position of the bones relative to one another is quite exact. There are things not visible to her naked eye that the X-ray reveals, and yet it isn't her hand. It isn't her foot. It's missing the the flesh, the bone, the the, the connective tissue, all that stuff that makes it feel organically hers. I, I can totally relate to that. So I can't. I can't. Um, as you will readily understand, speak to what it's like to read the sure. New York Times as a Chinese person, right? right. I'm, I'm not a Chinese person. But I think that uh, the other side of that coin, the coin that uh, Jiang, to mix my metaphors, was speaking to, is that writing for a general language publication, any general language publication about any place, involves pitching to a very broad audience. And right. the broad audience is broad means several things. It means ethnically diverse, it means uh, intellectually and educationally diverse, uh, etc. And so I've had the pleasure, and you skipped one of them, of working in many parts of the world. I've lived in Japan for five years right. as well. I, I've had this experience going around from place to place of having, you know, the plugged-in, globalized uh, elites of these countries saying, what is it with the New York Times or what is it with the Western media? And thinking that it is 
something special about the Western media's relationship to them without realizing that part of this maybe is due to the um, uh, just kind of blighted uh, uh, nature of Western journalists, and part of it is due to actually a constitutional reality and necessity, in fact, of writing for general audiences. These yeah, are two, yeah. two different problems. Yeah, I think there are a lot of structural issues that are built into it. There's also just the problem of column inches. There's just not enough space. Yeah, I mean, any... you can do something in a New Yorker article that you can't do in a, a you know, 1,200 words. On a slightly different topic, Howard, you are quite an accomplished photographer. I don't know if people in the audience know. Your um, second published book, if I'm not mistaken, was actually a book of photography. Do you think that your visual take on China, the things you learned or appreciated while going Thailand around lens, the streets yeah. of Shanghai taking photographs, does that impact your written journalism? So, as a course, I do different... The kind of journalism I do now is very different from the kind I did then, by the way, I still consider myself a journalist. I still write in, in, in that mode, um, but not as a foreign correspondent, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, the kind of journalism I did uh, as a foreign correspondent in China and in other places, I think, um, worked best when I was getting close to real people. Real people is a sort of conceit. It's a construct of journalism. I talk about it all the time in the classroom. Real people means not experts, not officials, not people in think tanks, not people who belong to work for NGOs, not people typically who are members of the elite, but kind of just regular folks, to speak colloquially, right? Um, and as a foreign correspondent, not only in China, but in most of the places I've worked, I felt that uh, one of the most necessary aspects of doing interesting work is getting away from the sort of more predictable kind of ex sources of expertise and knowledge and finding out how the ordinary folks live and think about their lives. Um, and so photo this photography allowed me, uh, I began what became this book in uh, the six month period after I had arrived in Shanghai. I was working, I was, I had, the Times gave me a year to study Japanese. I studied Japanese very intensively for a year. And it worked so well that when I went to China, they said, we'll give you six months. And so I, <laughs> and a so, lesson here. <laughs> and so I studied Chinese full time for six months in Shanghai. And I had uh, I constructed my own study plan. I found a um, school in Hongqiao uh, where I had four tutors and I worked two hours with each one back to back. And I would run across the street to Starbucks in between and come back and there'd be a new teacher in the class. Uh, and so after the end of uh, the work week, I was I felt like a like a squeezed rag or something. I mean, it was just like, you know, it was almost painful what I was going through, uh, the intensity of this experience. And I, t I had worked in photography before, but I was new to Shanghai and I didn't want to read, I didn't want to study, I didn't want to do anything that uh, occupied those muscles. I said, the city, this city is coming down around me and a new city is coming up. Let me go out and work with my camera around this. And so that was the beginning of this uh, project and it gave me an introduction to the Chinese people, if I may, as opposed to you know a Chinese elite or the people that you were supposed to interview for your day job, kind of. Thing. That, that's correct, Howard. I mean, if I may uh, hazard a little bit of flattery here, you are one of those journalists. Though your interest in the common folk, notwithstanding, you have a, a strong scholarly bent. Uh, I would compare you to some of the other journalists who I really admire who are working in the field, like Ian Johnson, who also really straddles academia and journalism quite well. I mean, it's really quite evident in, in the, your last book, especially, 
uh, that you were in the archives, that you were you know really uh, doing quite a bit of, of real research. It's easy to imagine that people like you and Ian could have been academics instead of reporters. And it's easy to see how you've each kind of made a transition in the last 10 years you've spent in at Columbia now. Can you talk about straddling these fields or, or being influenced by both and how that's impacted the way that you do journalism and the way that you conduct uh, and, you know, that your journalism has affected your, your scholarly writing and scholarly research? Sure. Uh, there's a lot of different pieces to this, and I'll try to pull them together as neatly as possible, uh, but just with the proviso that this isn't really a neat story. So part of it is my background. My parents were, you know, came from academic slash intellectual backgrounds, and so I had that as a house growing up experience. Part of it comes from my early experience of journalism. I taught myself to be a journalist. I teach at a grad school of journalism now. I never studied journalism. Um, and, Very few uh, journalists did. <laughs> right. Um, and so that came as a kind of critical reader. I would like take up, I lived overseas. I lived in West Africa and I would buy day old issues of the International Herald Tribune and I would literally mark them up with pencils to see what was going on and how the pieces were put together. But as I was doing that, I also began to form a very early kind of critique of the nature of foreign correspondence. I was living in Africa. My parents moved to Africa when I was in college. I didn't live there with them until I graduated and they were moving back. But because I had a kind of lived experience, I had a sense of how superficial or sometimes just how wrong uh, the kind of mainstream coverage of this region was. And, and I thought to myself, how can I overcome that? How do I avoid this myself? And this was a real challenge because on the one hand, it was really easy for me as somebody who had roots, if you will, uh, in a part of the world to just play on that and to sort of surf on my familiar, the sort of you know, easy familiarity that I had with the cultural and historical environment of the place. But, but um, I, I guess, you know, one of the, for me, one of the key incidents in my development in terms of the, the kind of nature of my approach to reporting that you, you've referred to is early in the history, I'm sorry, this is really dating myself, but early in the history of the internet, I became aware of a kind of bulletin board converse style conversation of, among Af academics who focused on Africa. And I started reading them and I became aware of just how hostile and how critical they were of the mainstream media's portrayal of Africa and coverage of Africa. And so I started to pay attention to their criticisms. And in a very, and, and they, there were lots of different strands of conversation going. It wasn't just them railing about the press, but they're talking about books and they're talking about history and they're talking about ideas. And I thought to myself, you know, I could live one of two ways as a correspondent. I could surf as this guy who has kind of a way with words and has an easy familiarity with the place, or I can kind of burrow, try to burrow down and get it, develop a deeper knowledge base uh, uh, about a place that I'm covering. And so that I, I opted quite consciously about the, the second approach. And then I moved into less culturally familiar parts of the world. I moved to the Caribbean and Central America, as you said. I hadn't worked in either of those parts of the world. I spent a lot of time in Haiti. Haiti is superficially very much like West Africa, but has very distinct history and politics. Uh, and I thought to myself, I could, I could play on the surface similarities or I can go deeper. And I started to go deeper than that. To fast forward in the story, eventually I get sent to Japan. That's my first place in East Asia. I'm sort of late mid-career by that point. I didn't know anything about East Asia. I didn't have any surface familiarity about East Asia. And I said to him, I was scared to death. I said, I better know something. I better develop a, a basis in knowledge of, for what I'm saying and try to get beyond just, you know, a, get burned in on what the other journalists have written right. uh, in the last year or two. Um, and so that past of apprenticeship, uh, 
sort of terms of the intellectual, intellectual topical background of the areas that I covered, really, I think, put me in a position to kind of get on my feet in East Asia and to do better informed work. Well, it served you very well. Um, I think that's very obvious if anyone's read All Under Heaven. Let's turn now to that book. It's a book about looking toward China's history and how Chinese people understand that history for clues as to what China is now in the process of becoming or what China will will be. Um, and that strikes me as a very sensible, but also a very perilous approach. If you ignore the obvious continuities with the past, as some people do, and the enduring patterns you know, that are quite burned in, the, 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 the whole the distinct cultural imprints that are there, uh, then you're, you know, merely ahistorical. You know, you're only surfing on that, right, as, we, as we've said. And that's just wrong. But once you start hearing historical echoes everywhere, uh, you convince yourself that everything that you see is rooted in some ancient and unchanging worldview, uh, then I think you find yourself with only a hammer in your toolbox and everything starts looking like a nail. And that's no good either. And so it's something that's, you know, kind of hard to thread. I've, I've talked a lot about on this program. Jeremy and I have both talked about how it's 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 hard to find the right balance between, you know, the, the conspicuous continuities and giving good weight to them, all these continuities from China's pre-imperial uh, or, um, uh, you know, pre-communist past and and the equally obvious changes that have taken place. I mean, Chinese, I've often said that the, one of the big conundrums or one of the big paradoxes is Chinese are at once the people I know who are most freighted by history, who are most sort of burdened by the weight of history. And they're also the people I know who are capable of instant transformation, turning on a dime, both at the same time. And these both seem to be true. So tell, tell us how you thread this. How do you, I think you did a pretty good job of, of doing that. So there's an African proverb uh, that I that informed my process, and this is partly combining this question with the previous question. Akuna uh, Matata? No. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Which says, which says. So sorry, just to interrupt, but yes. if 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 Jiang Fan is worried about the picture of China being an X-ray instead of the flesh and blood thing, when it comes to Africa, you know, all we get is like a cartoons, bloodied stump or something. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the proverb says, the higher a monkey climbs, the better you can see its ass. Um, and, and so so I wanted to write a book about China. Uh, I, and that was the proverb that came to mind. No, no, that was the peril that came to mind. Um, I knew the proverb long in the, you know, long before uh, that. Um and I didn't want to write. I so I, you know I had already set out in this vocation of writing books, and I liked writing books. And I and I read a lot of books, and I had read a lot of China books. And I said I don't want to write a f typical foreign correspondence book about China. And that's not because there have been no books in that genre that I admire. There are some that I admire quite a lot, but I think that there are that that. There are certain tropes and habits of foreign correspondent books about China that have become rather well-worn and in some cases even tiresome, right? Um, and so I didn't want to do that. And so this set me looking for other possible possibilities in terms of what I want to write. And I said to myself, so there's this giant question right now about what kind of power is China going to become or what kind of power is China becoming? So this is kind of late in the last decade that I'm beginning to think about this. And I said, well, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't really, there's no profit in me trying to be a soothsayer, but I can uh, try to explore uh, the continuities that exist such as they are. Uh, mindful, however, that I'll be the monkey in the tree if I try to paint this picture that, that, and I use this metaphor early in the book, that says that there's some kind of DNA that's set in China's nature 
which was that, you know, originates in the sort of dawn of time and that China can never escape. And I don't believe that. And right. so that was the path that I, or the needle that I had to thread. And, right. and, and I, 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 you know, it's for the reader to judge, but that's, that's what I'm wrestling with throughout the book. So Howard, let's talk about the main claims that you make in the book. What mm -hmm. are they? Uh, and what are the antecedents uh, that you find in China's history to back up those claims? I thought you were going to tell me. You were going to read. The, I thought you. <laughs> you forgot what's in the book. Huh? <laughs> no, I, not, not at all. I thought you had a note there. So these are. I find the following four claims. Yeah, uh, this is completely objectionable. No, um, you can defend or no. uh, attack yourself. So, so, I mean, I don't have a long list for you. Um, there's one or two really kind of principal ideas that I'm wrestling with, and they're not. I don't. I, I hope they don't come across to the reader as being conclusive ideas. But, you know, China forms as a civilization. The thing we call China forms as a civilization a very long time ago, obviously, and before any continuous or remotely continuous civilization forms in China's on China's perimeter, right? Right. So that's factor number one. Uh, factor number two is that the thing that becomes China is from a very early time much bigger than the thing that becomes any of the other surrounding civilizations uh, on its periphery. And so the argument that runs through the book is that if not DNA, these two realities of longevity and continuity on the one hand and size on the other hand have created habits of language and habits of mind and patterns of diplomacy that are fairly consistent, that we can see repeating themselves in variations over time, over a very long period of time. And so I explore what these are. And I look at China's relationship with Vietnam. I spend quite a lot of time looking at that because some of these patterns are exhibited from a very early time. Mm -hmm. um, I look at China's relations with, with Japan for similar reasons. And then I look at China's relations with other countries that don't have the longevity of relationship uh, as as Vietnam and 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 Japan do, such as the Philippines and and some other places. So uh, history rhymes, and it doesn't repeat, but it certainly you hear echoes for sure, right? Yes, I'd yeah, say so. I, yeah, I, I would have to say I, I read your book two years ago, and at the time, I guess I was I was pretty sensitive to what I thought were you know over over there was a little bit of overreach, you know that yeah you had said no DNA or anything, but you talked still about historical reflexes and you know the, the tianxia idea reoccurred in your writing enough that i was you know frankly well this is just I, I jotted down a note while reading your book i was looking at my you know notes from almost two years ago i wrote but china is the first second time around imperium no and I, I was like what the hell did i write there um which i i think i take to mean i wondered whether maybe you know China is alone in being a country that is enjoying a sort of imperium for the second time. And I, I sat I thought, I guess I'm kind of right. There aren't any other cases. So can we really, I mean, would we look at, say, a, a notional America hundreds of years from now that reemerges after the finally, you know, the disasters we've suffered in uh, the Trump administration, are, are we recover finally at last from them? In 500 years. In 500 time. years, right. <laughs> because that's about how long it'll take. And finally, after all that, you know, are people still going to talk about America in terms of manifest destiny? Are they still going to, you know, use the frontier and, and things like that to talk about America? Uh, so I guess, you know, how much of how much of, of, of this do you, I don't know how to, how to put this question. But. So I think the analogy that I would reach to is not America. It's an interesting question. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the idea, I'm going to give you a book, some book recommendations later on, and one of them actually gets at some of this. Um, but 
the 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 analogies I would reach to are Iran or Persia sure. and uh, the Muslim uh, Arab Middle East. That these are civilizational centers that have had very great periods in the past on a peer with anything in world history, uh, and that clearly among their peoples, this idea of returning to the grandeur grandeur of the past is remains a burning idea that there are that this is an integral piece of identity in both of those two cultures the difference is that it hasn't been realized or even remotely come, even come so close that's to yeah, it. china's right. unique china's unique right that is that's that's right but the idea of, of a continuity and of certain uh, habits of mind and urges is not unique what howard would you say are things that you could confidently assert are continuities uh, in China. So, uh, look, you're 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 luring me down a path. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> I mean, well, what are things that are not continuities? <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah, I, I've got some continuities. I mean, it's not in foreign policy, but I don't think anyone can look at the bureaucracy today and not see it with obvious continuities from the imperial examination system. I don't think it's possible to think about the Chinese state bureaucracy today without echoes of that, right? So, a continuity I would single out is a kind of a kind of vocabulary or language of diplomacy and of international engagement uh, mm -hmm. that one can find notes that I think are very consistent dating from a very early time to the present in which China or the thing we're calling China because I'm you know I mean this well, audience China, right? this audience is sophisticated enough to know but others many people don't but you know we're saying China is a continuous civilization but that's a highly problematic kind of notion to begin with right so the thing we're calling China um, has had a way of talking to other societies that involves a lot of assumptions of centrality, hence the name Zhongguo in the first place, right? Um, and that's, that's debatable, but... Uh, yeah, that's problematic, too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the problem with China as a topic is almost Everything anything is you say right. becomes yeah. debatable and problematic, right? But this language of diplomacy and of international relations in which there's a kind of default preference or even habit of... of, of oh, I don't want to make this sound... It's easy to, for this to sound pejorative, and I'll explain why you shouldn't hear it that way, but to, to, to talk down to other people. To speak in a pater patronizing or even paternalistic way. Like Yang Yechi at Apex. That's, thing, that's right. a very good recent right. example. The small, small countries. Some countries yeah. are small and some are big, and right. everyone right. should just get used to that. And here's why yeah. you shouldn't hear this as patronizing, right? As Even though it, I think it's a problem for China, I don't think it helps China in every instance, why you shouldn't consider this to be... Um, you know, I, I, I'm not dismissing. I'm not. I'm, I, this isn't intended as a harsh criticism of China. China's. You, you should think about China and its biggest neighbor, its most important neighbor historically in terms of demography on a continual long term basis. India. In terms of no, China, India has not really been a neighbor of China in a okay, consistent right, way. The Himalayas, Japan, yeah. yeah, Japan. Japan, then, uh, sure. So China and Japan, both in demography and in geography are roughly equivalent to the, the United States. I'm sorry, the, the Earth. That was a really Freudian slip. The Earth and the Moon. Okay. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Okay. Uh, you know, China is the Earth and Japan it's, it's is... It's okay. The, we're, we're in New York. At least you didn't say Manhattan. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Even as I look out Manhattan at that Brooklyn, receding right. vista. Yeah, right? Masters of the universe view. <laughs> yeah. um, and so if you're as big as the Earth and your next most significant player is the size of the moon, geographically or demographically, 
the sympathetic interpretation of this, and I mean this genuinely, is that there's a natural inclination to have some assumptions of preponderance, if not outright su superiority, right? Right, yeah. So you're talking about a natural propensity, and I would agree, there's a natural propensity, but I guess I apply a kind of Occam's razor to this situation where I feel like if you can explain the relationship between a state and its neighbors, and you find an analogous situation in which you have a large power with peripheral smaller powers, if you can explain that in the, the way that we would explain any Westphalian nation state in its relations with its smaller neighbors, shouldn't we go with that? And we don't need to resort then to sort of the psychocultural explanation or to historical reflexes or, let, God, God forbid, cultural DNA. But are there things that you think escape that kind of, when we're talking about China, that are not explicable in terms of just sort of great power relations as we, as we understood them in the Western context? Well, first of all, I think I, I, I want to insist on what I just said, which is that there are objective, rational reasons why China would be inclined right. to having That's this kind of language. That's what I'm saying, is that it right? would fall into it, right. Yeah. So it's not just the cultural kind of exotic okay. explanation. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. fact is, however, that there is this long record, some of which appears in the book, of China speaking in a certain language with a variety of neighbors, and that there's a certain consistency to this. And I think as a writer... Occam's razor aside, you'd be kind of, it'd be almost malpractice not to try to figure out what does this mean? Yeah, you're absolutely right there. I mean, I think people need to wrestle with that that question. Mm -hmm. So, Howard, do you think China is a, a revisionist power or is it largely a status quo power? I mean, you, you definitely... I think it's both. And this guy wants to have it both ways. <laughs> no, no, I think that, it's that, Again, you're in, in that China prison. It's always <laughs> All like right. that. No, yeah, please I explain. So. I think that the international system, the post-war, meaning World War II international system, uh, has been, uh, despite um, the Korean War uh, era, has been actually very good for China. Oh, yeah. In many ways. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. And so the, China understands that and wants to obtain or retain all of the benefits that go with the kind of arrangements that have been so favorable to it uh, under this regime. At the same time, China as a, you know, a society that has been called uh, of continental size and of such great population and of such long history and of, and here's another idea, I'm gonna I don't really elaborate on this in the book, but this sort of prompted a bit by your questions, you know, there's an insistent notion in China, which I admire. I don't think it's always to China's benefit, but I admire the instinct, if instinct is the right word, that says, for every problem, we should find a Chinese way to answer it, right? And so if international relations can be construed as a problem, and I think that is not uh, absurd, no, no. Uh, finding a Chinese way alongside of accepting the kind of um, incumbent arrangements is uh, a reflex yeah. that one is likely to continue to see in China. So that's why I say China is both a status quo power and has some of the leanings of a revisionist power. So it doesn't want to completely upset the apple cart because it's eating the apples, but it wants to get ahead of the queue so it gets... Uh, this know, metaphor is going nowhere. Sorry. Yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> we're running... But I'm, I'm, it started I, with such promise, too. I, I can jettison the metaphor and answer the question. So I say in the book that uh, in response pretty much to this problem that you've raised, that I think that the, the, the thing that Western journalism has described as Chinese assertiveness of the last 10 years or so, or of aggression or aggressiveness in some uh, versions, 
is can be best explained by a Chinese, meaning elite political Chinese sense, that there is a very definite window of opportunity for China to gain as much ground and to lock in as many benefits under the, the dual regime that I described of status quo power and we have Chinese ways of doing things as they can. That it does not mean we want to take over the world or we want to overturn every apple cart or you know remake, re remake the rules, right? But that somewhere short of mid-century, uh, demography and the environment are going to combine to make everything incredibly harder for China in terms of international ambition. Uh, and therefore, China is driven, I think, under this dual regime of uh, status quo and Chinese way of trying to get as many um, uh, advance as far and as broadly as it can as possible. Howard, when we were in Florida at, at the Boca Grande Conference, uh, we talked about the fact that you had actually submitted your manuscript ahead of the nativist populist upsurge, ahead of Brexit in June of 2016, ahead of the, the disaster of November of 2016. So speaking of revision, what would you have included now uh, that you didn't, you, didn't, you didn't get into the book then? What would you change? You know, if you had somehow glimpsed the populist nativist upsurge that caught so many of us completely off guard? Well, so the recommendations I make, uh, the book is 80% history. Right. Uh, and the beginnings of the book and the ends of the book are deal a lot with the contemporary scene in the world. And and uh, so those two sort of marginal pieces of the book were written, I, I closed the book, meaning the very last corrected proofs were submitted in July, the July before the election here. And I think the working, the widespread working assumption is that Hillary Clinton was going to win the election. Right. And of course she didn't, right? And so... Not on this timeline anyway. The, the <laughs> bottom line of the book was... The United States should not be freaked out about China. The United States should has to find a way to be more at ease with itself vis-a-vis -vis China. That this supposed aggression or this assertiveness is about the window that I described, that China does not seek to overthrow the international system. Yes, it's going to do some things in a Chinese way, and you need to understand why that's so compelling if you're sitting in Beijing. Um, but that... All the United States has to do is avoid making some critical quest, uh, mistakes. I would have written would have those same things the same if thing. I had known that Trump was going to win the election. I made, The rhetoric might have been a little different, but the, the recommendations would have been the same. Right. By keep the United States open to immigration. That's a real advantage to the United States. Keep renewing and refreshing and replenishing the alliance relationships in a variety of parts of the world. That's a real advantage to the United States. I am completely on board with these. Help China ease the way for China into all of the many um, standing um, institutional arrangements that exist in the international system. And on top of that, jettison this notion of we don't want people to join Belt and Road, or we don't want people to AIB, do... AIB. Yeah, right, right. Those were my recommendations. So th th these are essentially what you'd recommend the United States to do in order to get along with China in a more productive manner. So I wouldn't put it that way. Yes, that, that I think that would be the result, but that's not the reason I, I argued that the United States should do these things. The reason I argued the United States should do these things is, A, they're better for the United States, so if I'm speaking to who's going to be the next president, that's, that's, that's what the question is. What's going to be best for the United States? And freaking out about China is not good for the United States. I'll make sure to tell the same thing to, to Senator Harris. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Um, Howard, let's uh, switch gears a little bit. You've always been one of the more nuanced or perhaps the more appropriate word is informed observers uh, uh, of the, uh, and an observer of the early and up close uh, relationship of China in Africa. In the time since you wrote China's Second Continent, obviously about China's involvement in Africa, China's presence there has deepened. Other countries like India have stepped up their ambitions in Africa. Various United States officials have in recent months been making a lot of noise, um, perhaps Good a lot word. of sound and fury, <laughs> signifying nothing about Africa. And, uh, you know, w- we recently did a show uh, on, we were discussing earlier, uh, on, on China and Africa with Anzetse Wery and Eric Olander. And, I mean, the conclusion of that show, whatever you thought of it, is that China looks to be playing a very long game and arguably has actually shown some evidence of learning from its mistakes in Africa. Does that make sense? And... Can you give us your take on, you know, how the China-Africa relationship has developed in the years since you wrote the book? Sure. I think it's easy to uh, agree that China has learned from its early mistakes. I think I predicted that actually in in that book. Um, I think also China has made new mistakes. And I think that that is also to be expected, that Mm -hmm. the bigger and deeper set of relationships gets, the more possibilities there are to make mistakes. And so there have been big new mistakes. I think that um, you know, if I were, if I knew what I knew now uh, uh, about um, China and Africa and China and the world, the thing that I would have liked to have included—I mean, this is impossible because of the arrow of time—but the thing I would have liked to have included is this notion that I've thought a lot about since the book appeared. That you know, in retrospect, it seems very clear to me that Africa was kind of a laboratory for China with Belt and Road kind of already in the offing. In other words, Belt and Road was maybe not fully elaborated plan going that far back, meaning to the 1990s. But but some of the notions of Belt and Road have been kind of in the lab for a very long time, even if they haven't been assembled fully, you know, until fairly recently, right? And that I think that it was understood in China in the, as early as the 1990s under Jiang Zemin that Africa is a good place for China to acquire experience and a variety of things that will help China in the future on bigger, broader, higher stake stages. And those bigger, broader, higher stake stages are exactly Belt and Road. Oh, that's very well observed. Yeah, I think that's so many of the same things, for example, these sort of infrastructure for resource deals, the importance of transportation infrastructure to economic development, all these lessons that, yeah, that China took not only from, I mean, as Deborah Brodigan has argued, that's what Japan did in China. And it's also sort of how China has has, has managed its own pretty remarkable development. Right? So, and the other thing is, um, uh, in the short list you, ju- you just mentioned um, that's missing is how to operate in high political and economic risk environments. And Central Asia is a high political risk and economic risk environment. I feel environment. like they haven't quite gotten that one. I mean, they haven't really had that massive security crisis yet that they will. They're going to run into that, whether it's in Baluchistan or whether it's... Correct. Where, what um, I mean is that Africa, being a very complicated landscape, 54 countries, sure. you know, all different kinds of political systems, um, lots of unpredictability, um, Lots of personalized rule, which leads to higher risk. Um, Lots of uh, weak or heavily leveraged economies. All of that, all of those things helped China, I think, get a grip 
grasps around the idea of how to deal in a cultural and economic environment like Central Asia. Howard, let's shift gears here for this final topic and, and talk a bit about the U.S. and China. I mean, we've already talked quite a bit about what you would recommend the United States do. Uh, so I want to sort of alter slightly what I had originally uh, thought, thought of doing. Um, you came back to the States a decade ago. You've been thinking a lot about this moment that we're in right now, Jeremy and I. Uh, he came back four years ago. I came back three years ago. And, you know, we, I think we've, we're all wrestling with this, this interesting moment. It's quite a moment of psychological discomfiture for the United States, just watching China now threatening to eclipse American primacy, American hegemony, wrestling with these issues. Now, you've, you've told us what you would recommend, but what is your prognosis? What do you think will happen right now? Where do you think the United States is? Uh, and how worried are you about the direction that things are actually moving? So that, that's a lot of questions at once. I'm, I'm very worried about the United States, but my worries about the United States are heavily weighted in short-term ways. In other words, I, do, I, 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 I don't take a... Um, this is not meant to be the rosy glass view that, oh, once Trump is over, everything will be okay in the United States. That's not the point I'm trying to make. Mm -hmm. But I think that most of the liability of, of the present moment is actually bound up in the present moment. Um, that there there will be consequences to pay even if Trump goes after two years, and that the bills will be, um, you know, will be dealing with the bills for a long time. And that the United States, uh, I think, no matter what happens in terms of the succession here after Trump, will have surrendered um, some uh, not insignificant part of its. In the best of scenarios, will still have surrendered not some not inconsiderable part of its prestige and power in the world. But I think that the the um, the trajectories of countries are to a very large extent and to an extent that is not reflected necessarily very well in the sort of day to day headlines is bound up in more fundamental things. Right. Uh, and that the fundamental strengths of the United States overall remain quite impressive. And that China, I'm sorry, the United States has always been due for, since the Clinton years, a relative decline. Um, and so it's about how smartly can you negotiate your relative decline. And I argue, and 40% or so Americans don't agree with me, but I argue the United States is not only not negotiating that relative decline very well right now, it doesn't even realize that there's a relative decline underway or that In this is something right that it now, has right to now. deal with, right. right? I fear that is the case. Um, oh. Where, where China is going to go or where the two countries the are going to, where right. they're going to be, how they're going to be positioned vis-a-vis -vis each other in the you know, medium to longer term. You know, I mean, it's a nice parlor game. Um, I don't have any great insights except to think about the fundamentals. And China has some, some fundamentals which are really good and some fundamentals, some of which I've mentioned already, which are really bad. Um, and I think, Again, to speak about the way the two countries are written about, especially in relationship to each other in kind of daily journalism, the really bad fundamentals tend to be underweighted. And you don't think they're bound up in this moment? In what sense? Like you said, the American problems that we're facing, are, are they tend to be bound up in this moment. China's, you think, are maybe more enduring, more fundamental. Yeah. So uh, one of the most, I, actually the most, in my view, um, or the most obvious big long-term problem that China has is demographics. And demographics is a problem as somebody at the um, Chinese, um, at the um, uh, cast told me uh, a couple Chinese of years Academy ago, social, social sciences. sciences, I was trying not to do the acronym and then my brain froze, excuse me, but a cast person told me a couple of years ago, 
You know, the problem about this demographic stuff and all of the stuff she said that you can expect the government to try to do to overcome the demographic squeeze that is now underway is that the old people of tomorrow are already alive today. Tomorrow, the old, the, China's going to have more old people in 2050 than the populations of Germany, Japan, Britain, France, and a couple of other countries combined. Just lower the cigarette tax. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of old people. No. You know? And, and the cigarette tax is already pretty low in China. Yeah. <laughs> and old, yeah, old people, highs were too quiet now. Old people bring very spe special problems. The, you know, I, so I teach about this in class at, at Columbia and, you know, I've written a bit about it, and I have many, many Chinese friends. I spend lots of time in China still. And Chinese people, particularly of, you know, relatively young Chinese people, strike me as being unprepared to hear this. Right. And part of the problem is because young people don't like, in general, wherever they're found, are not terribly strong, typically, at projecting very far into the future. And part of it is because, okay, why is this American guy talking about this or thinking about this? this must be part of an American thing that's like, oh, it's meant to make him feel better. Let, let, let me make it clear, right? I don't want anything bad to happen to China. I don't get anything out of China being weak or poor or collapsing or having... I, I, I take no satisfaction out of any of those things, right? I'm not predicting those things either, right? However, when you have 60... Uh, that kind of population... I don't remember the exact number. 350 million people, I think it was, over, the age, over the age of 65 by the 2040s. Think about the numbers of Alzheimer's cases. Think about the numbers of people who have to have dialysis three times a week. Think about the numbers of people who have other chronic diseases, which are incredibly costly. And here's the trick, right? So China has been really, really successful in a very short period of time by world historical standards of building a pretty big middle class out of nowhere, right? It doesn't have a broad enough middle class yet, and that's part of the population problem, right? right? But what it does have is an aspirational middle class. All of the people who are not actual middle class people still want to, naturally enough, be middle class and think they sh should be able to be middle class. That's right. So thinking you should be able to be middle class and not being middle class is a real problem when your grandmother, or in this case, your mother, or maybe your husband, has diabetes or has some other chronic disease that's very, very expensive, and there's no real way to take care of it out of your own pocket, and the state isn't ponying up to take care of it. And this is the key point. The way that you, sensibilized as a middle-class or aspiring middle-class person, thinks that that person should be taken care of, right? Well. The temporarily embarrassed millionaires who make up the aspiring Chinese middle class are all going to see this as a terrific investment opportunity in medical devices into healthcare. So time to charge some piao in that area. <laughs> right, Howard French. What a pleasure to have you with us, uh, and uh, just terrific. And I uh, can't wait to talk to you again. Tell us what your next book is. My next book is a total departure, um, and. Um this isn't necessarily the audience that I'll be invited back to speak about, but maybe I shouldn't prejudge that. Um, it's about the role of Africa and Africans in the making of modernity. Um, and wow. it's a total reinterpretation of the history of the Atlantic world. By then, we will have launched our Africanica podcast. So, <laughs> so I we'll hope so. Like, All right. Uh, that's, that, that'll be great. Howard, thank you so much for, for, for joining us. Let's hear it for Howard Fresh. Thank you. Let's move on now to recommendations. Before we do that, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. Jeremy, why should folks subscribe to SubChina Access? 
so many reasons. One of them is that they can find you on uh, Slack every day and hassle you about your appalling political viewpoints. Um, <laughs> they do but that there again. are many reasons. You get a daily newsletter. Uh, you get free access to events like this and discounted access to other events where we aren't able to offer it free. Um, and we are uh, growing our stable of uh, media products from podcasts to newsletters, and members get access to all of that first. Indeed, indeed. Uh, lots of reasons, and that is really the best way that you can help us if you like what we're doing. Now, on to recommendations. Jeremy, kick us off. What do you have for us, man? Okay, so this is something I'm sort of proselytizing, and you know, the, the, those of the many youngsters here with no children, this is perhaps of no interest, but it's, it's a book called The Idle Parent, Why Laid-Back Parents Raise Happier and Healthier Kids by Tom Hodg- Hodgkinson. Now, obviously, you're going to think that I'm just providing a justification for my absolutely hands-off fathering style and that this is some kind of scam, but this is really an excellent book. It's sort of along the lines of, in America, they, this is a British author, in America they tend to call it, what is it, free-range parenting. Right. But it's an argument in favor of like, um, go to the pub and order a few beers and send your children to the woods and let them play and come back in four or five hours and talk to you. And somehow this appeals to me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. Leslie fair parenting. That's a very good recommendation. The Idle Parent by... It's good. I mean, you're too old for it, I'm afraid. Oh, your kids are too old for it, oh, I no, should I, say. I can, yeah, I'm still <laughs> Howard, what do you have for us? I understand you have a few. I us. have three we'll books. Take, take I wanted to give you more books, but I, I figured that the rules uh, were... There uh, are no rules. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the first book is Empires of the Week, which I read just about a month ago. Um, the subtitle uh, is The Real Story of European Expansion and the Creation of the New World Order. And it's by J.C. Sharman. And it takes um, it's a very really interesting uh, take on um, kind of deeply embedded notions of European technological and other forms of superiority that Westerners assume were responsible for, even when they don't vocalize. I think uh, Westerners often assume we're responsible for the thing that we conceive of as the rise of the West beginning in the sort of the right. 15th century. Um, um, and he just Neil, Neil, Neil Ferguson. He right? he just you know uh, in a very clinical way kind of sure. um, dismantles all of it. Good, this. good, good. Um, that sounds like good medicine. The the second book is River of Dark Dreams: Slavery and Empire in the Cotton Kingdom by Walter Johnson, who's one of the most interesting historians I think working in the United States today. That uh, happens. I'm interested in slavery because of my new book, but. I think this is a book that would, you know, should fascinate anybody who's remotely interested in history at all. Mm. Um, and he gets he, he so his uh, one of the most important threads that runs through this book is about, uh, you know, how Thomas Jefferson had this vision of the west, the United States west of the Mississippi, being this land that would save democracy because gentlemen farmers would go there and gentlemen farmers. Uh, excuse me for the kind of innately sexist notion, but this was the way he talked about it, are people who, you know, men who go out and farm uh, are democratic in their nature. And he, Johnson tells the story of how the, the lust for profit through cotton took over and how this ended up um, driving really uh, manifest destiny uh, and attempts to invade various Latin countries, Cuba, Nicaragua, Brazil, Etc. All for the purpose of saving cotton slavery, uh, wow. or of getting rid of slaves, American slaves. Once it, the writing was on the wall, and it was known that that slavery would not persist in this country. 
the final book is um, The Intimacies, plural, The Intimacies of Four Continents by Lisa Lowe. Uh, Lisa Lowe is um, a um, professor of literature and sociology, I believe, at Harvard, who used to be at Berkeley. Um, and this is a book that also del delves uh, into the history of slavery, but uh, the most important sort of an original piece of this book talks about how Britain, once uh, it uh, outlawed slavery, began to try to introduce Chinese people as indentured servants in places like Trinidad and Cuba and, and um, South Africa, Guyana, and in South Africa, which comes up in the book. And, and, and she sort of gives a reinterpretation of what this means. And it's, it, 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 it's very provo provocative. Intimacies of Intimacies Four, of four continents, continents by Lisa Lowe. Excellent. Wow, uh, that's a lot to digest. I will add them to my list. Mine is just an article. Uh, it's a relatively short article. It's in the London Review of Books by uh, a writer I've, I've really taken a fancy to recently. His name is Adam Tews, and he wrote the book Crashed. I don't know if you've, you've read that. It's a really great sort of postmortem on the financial crisis. It's it's quite brilliant. Uh, Tews' article in, in London Review is called, Is This the End of the American Century? And I had to bite my tongue not to talk about it while Howard was talking about American resilience and talking about how American power will still endure in, in, in many of it's, it's it's sort of an uh, it, it argues against a lot of the kind of lazy declinism that a lot of people have been sort of bandying about recently, uh, looking very squarely at at uh, the state of American power. It's quite good. I highly recommend it. Um, I think that it's it's highly nuanced. It's not you know by any stretch of the imagination sort of an apology for Trump or anything. It's saying despite Trump. Uh, there's still quite a bit left in the American bag of tricks. Howard, um, so wonderful that you could be here for this. Uh, thank you all for coming. Give yourselves a round of applause. Thank you. Also, thanks once again to Albert Wong and all the good people at Datadog for hosting this event. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Special thanks this week to Jesse Emanuel for putting together this and all our recent live shows. Drop us an email. Make us make sure to leave us a rating on Apple iTunes Store. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. We will see you next week. Take care. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. Thank you. Okay.